Authorized is on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash authorized pod if you want to support us. For $3 a month, you can help us buy these books. For $6 a month, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. And for even more money, you can demand that we read and discuss a certain novelization. Pretty cool. If we get enough listeners, we will start putting out bonus episodes, so tell your friends. Authorized.com. It's not authorized.com. What? Patreon.com slash authorized pod. Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we whimsically discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations add nothing to a film. Demonstrating restraint, becoming of a United States Marine, these books choose to spruce up very little, to narratively add nothing, and to exclusively report the facts as conveyed by the script. Trouble is, film has a natural advantage over prose where a film can drop its audience into a situation and trust it'll pick up on context clues conveyed by camera, lighting, acting, blocking, stunts, and many other factors, novelizations must tell all through just their words. And so, in stringently hugging the script and barely diverging, novelizations ultimately prove to be lesser than the film that birthed them, more of a flowery book report than a book at all. How are we feeling, guys? <laughs> Coming in strong. Yeah. Yeah. I think I know where you stand on this book, my friend. <laughs> hey, I got feelings about Max Allen Collins, an 85-year-old man. <laughs> I am. It's, it's on site with this guy. Mm. All right. We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. And I'm Hannah Blackman. Wind Talkers is a 2002 war film I had never heard of before. And I had never heard of. <laughs> I am shocked. <laughs> never heard okay, of it ma- once w- in my life. <laughs> Mystery person, we will get to you. You brought this movie to <laughs> us, and we will bring it right back to you in just a second. Because I'm going to grill you. <laughs> uh, yeah, directed by John Woo, our best buddy, who is great, except... Anyway, Wind Talkers stars Nicolas (laughs) Nicolas Cage as Joe Enders, a United States Marine who received glowing commendation after being the only man in his squad to survive a grisly battle against the Imperial Japanese Army Uh, during World War II. Yeah, sorry. I I never read these in advance and then I fuck them up every time. I'll take this line because it's just patently a lie. (laughs) Yearning to return to World War II, or as Enders calls it, the big deuce. Which, yeah, that's not true. That's not in the book, it's not in the movie. Not anywhere (laughs) present at all. Enders finds himself the bodyguard for a Navajo wind talker, a phrase that is not mentioned in the book, but is only mentioned in the movie, as I remember, who can speak in a code indecipherable to the Axis powers. 
Though Enders' wind talker is valuable, his code is even more precious, and there may come a day where Enders has to kill the man to protect the code. <laughs> and he does at one point kill a man to protect the code, and it's crazy. It's upsetting. <laughs> you think the whole movie is going to be Willie do it. It's, he's haunted by the idea that he might have to kill a wind talker to protect the wind. But in fact, two-thirds of the way through the movie... The, the Japanese capture a Navajo guy and Enders just grenades him. <laughs> Ooh, I can't wait to get to that specific scene. <laughs> the novelization of Wind Talkers was written by Max Allen Collins for Better and Mostly Worse. And it was published by Harper Entertainment in 2001. Okay, before we jump into this guy's bio, which is short, I do want to say, Hannah, we yeah. recently recorded an episode that for the listeners came out like four months ago, uh -huh. which is the Batman and Robin Crumb, the second Batman and Robin novelization. Yeah. And during that, Pax was like, yeah, I just did The Mummy, and Max Allen Collins added so much to The Mummy, I, I felt like it couldn't even be contained in an episode. It has to just be a guy with the same name. I, I can't imagine that's true. I think it has to be the same guy who did a shitty job. I mean, I think he's one of the novelization writers whose name I see and I go, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to do a good job here. Like, I'd rather have someone I've never, ever heard of on the front of a novelization than Max Allen Collins. Yeah, this has the exact opposite energy of Joan D. Vinge. <laughs> Gets in a car accident can't write a book for years, gets to write Cowboys and Aliens, and, and all of the vivacity that was that was strangled from her by by being differently abled comes like roaring out of her. This is the exact opposite. Yeah. This is this is like a, a the, the first book a man had to write in the underworld after his passing. Okay. <clears throat> that being said, Max Allen Collins, come on the podcast, we Respect our elders. Okay, who is Max Allen Collins? Max Allen Collins is a prolific writer, perhaps best known for writing the graphic novel Road to Perdition, upon which the Sam Mendes film of the same name was based. Collins uh, also wrote two novel sequels to Road to Perdition that uh, never were adapted. He also took over writing the uh, Dick Tracy after its creator Chester Gould retired, and he briefly wrote some Batman graphic novels as well. In addition to his work as a writer, Collins has written and directed four movies. Mommy, Mommy 2, Mommy's Day, Real Time, Siege at Lucas Street Market, and Elliot Ness, An Untouchable Life, based on his Edgar winning or Edgar Award-nominated play. Now, just from a joke structure standpoint, I really wish it was Mommy, Mommy's two, Mommy 2, Mommy's Day, Mommy the Reckoning, then like a different one. <laughs> I think three, and then it swerves into he did an Elliot Ness one, is funnier. I am essentially saying that I wish reality were different, but but we're stuck with the rule of two and two as, a, as opposed to the rule of three. Okay. Collins, Max Allen, has written over 20 movie novelizations, including The Mummy, The Mummy Returns, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, and U.S. Marshals. That's right. We're seeing him again really soon. Have you looked at his picture on Wikipedia? The glasses yeah. guy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great picture. I wish his writing was as cool as he looked in that picture. 
Yeah, I wish he had. I wish he would come unauthorized. I feel like he'd be fun. Oh, he's written you a know? bunch of CSI Just based on that photo novels. Alone. Ooh, la, la. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Let's please introduce our wonderful guest. Oh, I mean, we said this before we started recording, but this is not an episode where I'm coming in like I have so much meat I want to dig into. Well, I just Let's don't want talk Matt about to feel how like... well the guy photographs. <laughs> we have time. Our guest today, returning from. Our second Friday the 13th Camp Crystal Lake episode, Matt Dartnell. Matt, how are you doing? Uh, and what what's sort of going on? It's the middle of the summer. I myself am like just back from a huge trip. What's the energy right now? What's happening? Mm, you know, it's hot everywhere. Uh, in my life, elsewhere, people are sweating and running the air conditioning and... I think mm-hmm. finally trying to enjoy a summer vacation after a few years of no public activities. So uh, things are good. We're heading out on a road trip tomorrow, my wife and I, and uh, I still have to pack. So we're doing great. Amazing. Uh, yeah, speaking of not having summers, and maybe listeners will come at me for being COVID irresponsible, uh I discovered in the primary COVID years of 2020 and 2021 that for as much as people moaned about, oh, I can't go out, or now the parks are so crowded, or whatever, nothing gets people out of bed. Because I started going, you know what, I'm going to bike like right when the sun rises. Even when the belly aching was at its most, nobody was out there doing anything ever until like 1030 in the morning. Some people aren't freaks who can get up that early and be active, Andrew. The trade-off is just that you aren't productive and you frustrate everyone from 2.30 p.m. on. It's just a trade-off that I'm willing to do. Uh, Matt, let's talk about the 2001 film Wind Talkers by John Woo. Uh, You couldn't have known this, but we very recently did an episode on Face Off. So another Nicolas Cage, another John Woo. Amazing. Uh a very interesting and uh, flowery novelization that took a lot of liberties. What's your relationship to the film Wind Talkers? Uh, As Hannah and I said, didn't know about it. (laughs) Uh, I did know about it. And I think for me, when I was 12, this was the movie that got away. Like this was the movie that I wanted to see more than any other movie and it took me seeing it listed on, you know, potential novelization options to be like, okay, I need an excuse to finally watch this movie, you know, 20 years later. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I was a, a very sheltered religious kid who was not allowed to watch R-rated movies. And uh, I was also a history nerd who was obsessed with war. And I remember going over to a friend's house and all he did was talk to me about Saving Private Ryan and how he went mm-hmm. and saw it with his dad and it was so gross and it was awesome. And all I wanted was to watch Saving Private Ryan. And then a few years later, Wind Talkers came out and I said, that looks like the coolest fucking movie I have ever <laughs> seen in my life. I need to watch it. Uh, but it was still rated R and I was still not allowed to. And um, I just felt kind of bad about that. So it was fun to revisit it and be disappointed by it a little bit. (laughs) So wait, um, when did you actually get to see it? uh, About two weeks ago, as a matter of fact. (laughs) 
It, oh, you had not seen it I when you chose seen it for it. this. No, no, no. I this was my excuse. This was me finally being like, okay, I gotta atone for the sins of younger Matt for never having watched it. And um, yeah, it, it was interesting just because like, I think war movies are, at least for me, uh, they were like my gateway into like extreme cinema in a lot of ways. And, and I was thinking about, you know, the only other episode I've done with you guys is another story about a bunch of unfortunate people who go into the woods and just get slaughtered. <laughs> yeah. And so seeing like, this is another book where we're talking about intestines and we're talking about, you know, knives to the face and we're talking about, you know, uh, hidey holes for ambushes and stuff like that. So uh, it is funny to kind of think about the extreme nature of of war movies and more than anything that's kind of what i wanted to watch them for like i really wanted to be titillated i wanted to watch some gore and i knew that war movies were a sort of uh parent sanctioned way to watch some some gore and um <laughs> at least on that point the movie did not disappoint because uh it's rather violent and um mm. i had a good time with that but yeah story-wise i think i was a, a little disappointed i probably would have loved it when i was 12. I watched this movie on the Roku channel, which has commercials, and I wonder if I would have liked it more in a movie theater on a normal streaming service if I had turned out all the lights. Um, I had a really hard time getting into it, and also every time that it would be like, oh, something exciting, it would cut to a commercial. (laughs) Pretty generally, it was edited that way. Uh, I know there is, I did not watch this version, but I heard that there is a director's cut that is supposed to be substantially better, and uh, Mm. my hope for that is that it actually, like, has a story and follows (laughs) some themes instead of just being random, extremely well-designed action scenes, but um, it is mostly, here's some people, here's some diversity, here's some bloodshed, so, yeah, it's tough. You mentioned Saving Private Ryan, a, a wonderful film that I, I revisit often. I, I think that while they definitely share DNA in the sense that they're both war films, they're both very unflinching in the way they show these are terrible ways people can and do die in war. Don't look away is kind of the feeling in both movies. The key difference for me is that Saving Private Ryan is about humans <laughs> fighting this war. And so there's these there's these quiet, slow scenes where we get to know all these guys, and then there's real stakes when it ramps up and suddenly Adam Goldberg's getting stabbed in the heart 17 times very slowly. A moment so upsetting, I could never watch that movie again. I mean, you say a moment. I think it goes on I think for it's like five two minutes. minutes. It's, it's gen- yeah. like I had, as a quick side note on Saving Private Ryan, they showed us the opening sequence in high school, like as a historical exercise, which is insane. In that's my all I wanted in high school. That's all I wanted. <laughs> and I, in high school, was I was like, that's way too much for me. I can never see this movie. And then everyone's like, it's a great movie. It's the best movie, blah, blah, blah. And at one point, Blank Check podcast covered it. And I was like, okay, now is the moment. I will finally watch Saving Private Ryan. I watched it. Adam Goldberg gets killed in the most upsetting way possible. I think I was sobbing through the rest of the movie because I found I just like couldn't get over how upsetting that was, and I'll never yeah. watch it again. <laughs> I I love that movie because 
it just has a maximalism to it that I I did not bank on at all from Steven Spielberg. Like I really thought that people respected it because it sort of had like tasteful dashes of violence. This was always my assumption. You put Saving Private Ryan on, and it's like it's got this like gooey little you know a uh, tender heart at its center oh all my boys died and we want to get the last one home because we want to save our sense of family and then the way it goes about delivering that story is like everyone is getting so fucked up all the time and it's all upsetting and it's <laughs> two hours and 45 minutes long this movie wind talkers yes is only Hannah, go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, I, I think this is a larger question about war movies, actually. But, like, uh, some great filmmaker was like, there's no way to make a war movie that isn't pro-war because you make war look cool, and that's yeah. unavoidable. Yep. That's obviously true. The only way to make a war movie that's anti-war is that you never see a battle. Um, and even those are a little bit like, somebody's always like, it's great to be here. <laughs> I'm the psycho character. Right. There's you're still always like, one of me. <laughs> Indeed there is. And so like you either end up with like the, the, the 40s, 50s war movies type movie where it's like, war is heroism. It's essentially propaganda. It's not cool, but it's honorable. And then you get war movies that are like, eh, rocks. It's nasty. It's cool. Um, it's bad, though. Don't forget it's bad. Every war movie is about how war is bad, but also it's cool. Um, and I think that Saving Private Ryan is more in the traditional sense of a war movie where it's about honor and dignity, and it's awful, and it's sad, mm-hmm. and these people are getting slaughtered and ruined, but it's for a good cause. And Wind Talkers is like, cool, huh? Pretty fucking cool. Bad, <laughs> but very cool. And I don't like that version of a war movie. I have a really hard time getting on its side and enjoying the movie because I'm just like, it's not cool. It's very bad. It's very, very bad. I, I think that's especially true in this one as well, where like, uh, it does not, like it does not shortchange you on the carnage and the squibs and the explosions. <laughs> like it is an outrageous- Oh, were there squibs in this? You might were have missed them. there squibs in this movie? You might have I, them. I might have missed them. <laughs> by, by the way, I did look at the IMDB parents uh, what do they call it? The 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 parents guide for this one, and it the last thing it says is no less than five hundred and fifteen on screen deaths. That's what oh it says God. in this movie. Whoa! But I, I don't. Right. But there there might have been a few scripts, only a few. Uh, <laughs> but like, while while showing the carnage, while showing different ways for a human body to be obliterated by you know m- man made machinery, it's also like. But if you're there and you've been traumatized by this, you might turn into a superhero. Like there's some stuff in here where it's like through your trauma, through your bravery, through your camaraderie with your fellow soldiers, through your duty, you will be able to accomplish like gargantuan feats of masculinity. (laughs) You you will become invincible. Ammunition will not matter anymore because you can just generate more with your body somehow. It's just like. It is so <laughs> contradictory in that way that, uh, yeah, I think you're both, uh, you're both right. It's weird. <laughs> it, the, you're, the way you're talking about, Hannah, uh, mm-hmm. war movies is the way that I feel about mob movies is, is that there's so many mob movies where people are like, oh, it's such a fun movie and then there's justice at the end. Like it's, And I'm like, no, all the mob movies that people like are ones that I look at and I'm like, that it's too cool. It makes it look too good. Everything like uh, the villains come out too well. Like the um, the 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 I actually think like the Irishman is like the 
platonic ideal of a mob movie because it's so fucking sad. <laughs> it's yeah, just like, is... you know what would make you really sad? Killing people. You'd get real fucked sad. up over it. This is why Untouchables is very special, circling back to Untouchables. The concept of Untouchables, not the film exactly, Max Allen Collins, whatever. Um, kind of a mob movie, but we're like, they know you can't spend that much time with the mob because you'll want them to get away with it. So there's like two yeah. scenes with the mob, and the rest of the movie you're like, boy, I hope they catch those mysterious mobsters who I've never met before. <laughs> yeah. That's like the yeah. moment you spend point. time with mobsters, you're like, those guys are cool. Those guys are fucking cool. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the reason I invoke Saving Private Ryan to begin with, uh, it, it, I love the the where we went with it, but the reason <laughs> I bring, I brought it up to begin with is because in that movie you get these human lulls, then these explosions of action. Wind Talkers is like the part in the Deer Hunter where they go to war just fifty times in a row. In the Deer Hunter, they're just like talking about, well, well we're gonna go to war soon. What a smash cut to they're there. Mm -hmm. This is like smash cut to they're there. 20 times in a row, just every scene. And I'm, I'm talking about both the movie and the book. The book is so disorienting. Every scene just starts with, ah, boom, boom, boom. Whoa, wait, what's going on? And you're like, what is happening? What, how did they, like, I need like one moment where somebody goes, all right, well, of course we're advancing up this ridge. And then, oh no, we're getting shot at. But it feels like every scene in this movie begins the second after they get shot at mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i think that goes to your point too where it's like uh the biggest question that this story is asking is like are these bodyguards going to kill the people that they are supposed to protect because there's no other mission that we get to follow except for like i would really hate to kill this guy i wish he would stop showing me pictures of his family because <laughs> it's gonna make it really hard when i have to kill him it's just like uh okay cool interesting I, I mean, what I find on that note is that the Christian Slater character bodyguard is a guy who's like, I could never kill my guy. But we spend maybe 14 minutes with him total in the whole movie. It feels like it should be kind of like a dual thing. And then Christian Slater can't do it and it gets him killed. And Nicolas Cage can do it and he's, it saves him. And that is a difficult position to be in and an upsetting conundrum to think about. And then the movie's like, well, we'll check back in with Christian Slater just right before he dies, and then we'll get rid of him. Oh, yeah. And I could have used a lot more of that guy who is a character I liked. In the same way that, like, all of the rest of the guys in the troupe are not people, as Overby was saying. Like, they are war stereotypes. You spend a minute with them at the beginning being like, I'm a racist Texan. I have a wife at home. I'm you know, I'm a handsome blonde guy. I'm Mark oh, yeah. Ruffalo. Very um, archetypal. Really, I'm the Swedish guy. <laughs> yeah. Stuff where I was like, okay, I totally understand what this story is. And having not seen the movie first, I very much was like, I get it. I totally get what's going to happen here. All of them die. And then indeed, all of them die in various mm -hmm. ways, one by one. Sometimes because of their own personality foibles. Sometimes just because. Which I guess is how war is. But the personality foible is a little bit more of the traditional war story mm -hmm. that I... I think if I think if this movie was leaning more in that direction, I could have gotten more on board with it. Um, and I think that's like my biggest issue with the film and the book and the story is that like it has nothing to do with the code itself. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the wind talkers. Like it's it's sort of used as this excuse to 
to tell a war story that's, you know, different people, different cultures coming together. We have a common goal. We got to beat the bad guys. I mean, yeah, it's propaganda, like we're saying. <laughs> but also, like, why do they need these Navajo code talkers to be on the front lines of this battle? And, like, th- there's some interesting historical context for, like, codes in warfare. Like, okay, so the movie's supposed to take place 1943, 1944, and literally in 1943, there was an American military campaign called Operation Vengeance, where we deciphered Japanese communications, found out where one of the top, top Japanese generals was going to be, and we were able to intercept his plane, shoot it down. We killed General Yamamoto, the guy who basically planned Pearl Harbor. And like, there's no... There's no world in this story where, like, these specific codes getting deciphered or, like, hearing the enemy on your radio signal actually matters to the story. And I think I was actually grateful in the book, at least they frame it as, like, you guys are the recon team. You're supposed to go there and call back, like, where the guns are, basically. But again, with that, I'm like, yeah, but the enemy knows where the guns are. Like, if they find out that you're radioing your ships and saying, hey, we found where the guns are, like, I guess they might know where you are, but, like, why does that need to be translated into this super secret code? It just never once made sense to me, and every time it would happen, I was like, this does not need to be a Navajo co-talking thing. You could literally just get on the radio and speak in English and say, hey, we need help. You're shooting us. We're, this is friendly fire. Like, I just did not understand at any point. It was insane. I think the function of the code talker, I'm going to go to bat for the movie here. I, <laughs> just for the record, I think the movie is okay. I, I, I wasn't crazy about it, but it was fine. I really think the novelization is really bad. So the, the, <laughs> the all the negativity I'm bringing in is aimed at the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the front lines of battle, we see in the movie... They're, they're yelling strategy things over the radio. They're saying, like, flank this, blah, 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 that, go up over here. And I think that is information that you want to keep from the enemy. So that makes sense to me. And also, it also it, there's, like, a logical... The more important the information, the more you would need a wind talker, a code talker, in that situation. Mm-hmm. So I think narratively, you just earn that they'd be everywhere in every aspect of the war. I think what's missing is a moment when code talking saves the day in any way. That's a great point. Like there's, there's like when they're being hit by friendly fire, it's by the time he's managing to code out and say, stop, it's too late. And half their people are dead at the end where they're like, we need air support. It's too late. Everybody's dead. So it's never like a heroic act to do the code talking except that you're on the front lines and that's very dangerous the heroism is all like yeah you broke orders you ran to the front you killed a bunch of people (laughs) you know do we punish you or do we give you every medal i have in my (laughs) pocket right now yeah should we try to make a viral video where like viral video i'm talking like a grandma (laughs) um should we try to make a video go viral that's like you know, uh, the, uh, our version of the newsroom scene where we're like in, <laughs> we're in like 1945 or whatever, and we go up to the captain of whoever's like getting us across the Atlantic to England, and we're like, we just wanted to be the first to let you know 
they got General Yamamoto. <laughs> <laughs> Would it yes. be good? I, I, it's a niche audience. I am I that audience. <laughs> I am that audience. I love it. I'll retweet. I mean, there's also never a point where, like, human tenderness is a heroic thing. Like, Joe Enders' whole arc is like, I don't want to get to know this guy. I'm a cold, callous person due to my trauma. And then at the end, he's like, I love him and I hope he lives. And that's that's also never presented in a way that's like, that's really valuable and important because, again, it gets him killed. Okay, let me ask something ignorant. And by ignorant, I don't mean hateful. I just mean the absence of knowledge. Sure. How do you direct a film in a language you don't speak? That is a great question. I really I mean, don't clearly get John Woo did it multiple times Many to times. success. Mm-hmm. And he has masterpieces under his belt. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. In with fact, get me right, please. With Christian Slater. These are his homies. It's, yeah. But would it be insulting to suggest, is, is there just some level of trust? Are you saying that, like, I, I sort of trust that the way that line was delivered sort of works in a way in the language it was delivered that maybe I don't fully comprehend? I mean, you've watched foreign movies in foreign languages, and you understand tone from them. Yes. Right? Yes. I think it has to be like, well, it sounds like the emotion I'm asking you to present. And eventually, certainly, he picked up some English. It's not like he Definitely. never spoke any English or continues yeah. to. He's alive, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he still directs. He just hasn't done an English language movie since Paycheck. Probably good for him. So... Okay, well, you know, maybe I'll cut that, depending on how stupid it makes me sound. No, I mean, I would wonder if there was a level of, like, because this movie is kind of like an American rah-rah type of war movie. If there was, like, a cultural right. issue of of him directing a story like this, where he's just like, I don't really get how to make this work, because I don't understand this level of, you know, imperialist, what's the word I'm looking for? Nationalism, you know? Um, yeah. Something like that. If there's something missing there, where you're like, well, you just don't quite get what this would need to work mm-hmm. well you know what he got wrong first casting nicholas cage <laughs> i am a huge cage guy i love cage but i'll be the first to admit there's roles he's just wrong for and he's not doing what this role requires his sort of like cranky racism in the first half of the movie uh, it, it reads as very wooden. It reads as very, like, play-acted. It seems like that time at NYU that they handed me a monologue that was of a neo-Nazi and I had to say a bunch of racial slurs, something I wish a teacher hadn't done to me. But it, it, it reminded me of me in that, where you're just sort of like, I've never said these words before, and, it, and, and they, they sound weird coming out of my mouth. Like, he wasn't, like, believably hateful for me, and he seemed... Um, I don't know. I didn't believe the character. That's what I'm saying. He's also like 43 on a character who I kind of want to be 30. Yeah. You know, which which just puts like a weird, like his relationships with the other soldiers are a little weird because he's older. His relationship with Yasi is weird because he's older. And you're like, how are we supposed to feel about them? Are they supposed to be brothers in arms? Are they even like, or is this like a mentor dad thing mm-hmm. of a guy you mm-hmm. want to impress? Which is just like, puts the whole thing in a in a way that like doesn't feel right to me yeah especially when he sort of has to exist on an island emotionally just so that he can preserve that like that that distance between him and the 
and, and Ben Yazi, who you might have to kill. And so for him to be the sort of like Super Saiyan soldier that turns on, saves the day, and then immediately just like sits on the side of the circle and glares at you and feels a lot of emotions that he won't actually talk about. Um, it is a weird, it's a weird character to kind of think about for sure. Um, and, you know, they try to give him a love interest, sort of. This Not worth woman it. who just out of nowhere decides that he's the man of her life and writes him all these letters and like none of that stuff worked particularly well in the movie or in the book because like he's an asshole and he's angry and all he wants to do is be a super soldier and I just don't understand the sex appeal of that to be totally honest. Yeah, if she was like a high school girlfriend who was like, you've changed but I still love you, that would be one thing. But she's just you, like you a nurse who met that. him at the mm-hmm. worst moment of his life and was like, hot though, and it's yeah. not. You're, you're very wounded, <laughs> and I like that. I'm going to help you lie your way back onto the battlefield so that you can protect this extremely valuable asset that we have at our disposal. So Okay, so he lies his way back onto the battlefield because he's deaf in one ear, and that should put him out of the service. He's not no consequences. Deaf. No consequences. He never gets somebody killed because he can't hear or something, which you kind of expect will come up. It mm-hmm. doesn't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Francis O'Connor, uh, his love interest who we're talking about, helps him cheat to get back into war. You know, she's given him the answers to the sound test so he can pretend he's not deaf in one ear. And uh, that just that just happens. Mm-hmm. Things just happen in this movie sometimes. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, the pace it's is just sort of a series of disconnected events if you if you look at it from a certain perspective. And uh-huh. there's an argument to be made that, like, well, war is meaningless. The things you do are meaningless. There's no logic or tracking to it. You go up one hill, okay, and then they're like, no, no, we need the other hill. There's nothing you can do about that. This movie isn't engaging with that at all, just to make uh-huh. that very clear to the listener. Um, the things that could be good about the way this movie is structured and constructed uh, are not good. I agree. I agree. Cause so much of it is like, what is the mission aside from, yeah. I mean, the Pacific campaign, the Island of Saipan, the book gives us a little bit of context about like it's military importance and the sort of broad strategy of like how they took the Island and everything like that. But again, I don't know what that has to do with, like, this core group of guys, and I wish there was a more, like, structured, almost, like, episodic mission that they would be going on, just so we could follow it along and see how they grow, and, you know, because aside from that, it is extremely familiar in all of, like, the wartime beats, you know, where it's it's the, it's the, what are you gonna do when this is all over conversation, and it's the, show me pictures of your family conversations, and the... Uh, the overt racism conversations and stuff like that. But um, yeah. And then everything is just punctuated, not by like any emotional beats, but just like random gunfire. Like it's just, and and there, there is a good range to the actual fight scenes that we get. Here's the jungle stuff. Here's the hillside stuff. Here's the, the sort of city based stuff. But like, it really is as soon as someone starts opening up, like that's when the gunfire comes and that's when the bonsai attack comes over the hill and it's just like, okay, I wish we had like some punctuation marks along the way at any point, really. Why does Joe Enders want to go back to war? I think he's suicidal. He's okay, so his suicidal. entire squad gets killed 
in the opening moments of the movie. And then he's like, I have to go back to war. And then he gets there and he's, I mean, I understand he's traumatized, but he gets there and he spends the whole time just being nervous about his mission. It, it really doesn't feel like he should have gone back. He doesn't have a good time. I agree. I mean, I, I would expect that what he intended when he was like, I'm fit for duty, was that they would put him back in a squad on the front lines and he would immediately get himself killed. He has survivor's guilt. He doesn't want to be in that situation. Um, and instead, he's given this mission that is about protection. It's about staying alive, very particularly, not just in a normal soldier way, but in like, it's very important. And it doesn't, it's not what he wanted. Yeah, there are a lot of times to that point where instead of like doing doing the thing, being the bodyguard, staying with his, you know, the person he's been assigned to, he just like fully leaves and runs into gunfire. And of course he emerges, mm-hmm. you know, unscathed for the most part. But there were a lot of times where I'm like, that was not your job at all this is this is about jobs this is about you following orders and accomplishing a mission and you have no interest in that because yeah i think you're right i think he is extremely suicidal one of the only good insights the book has is there's that line in the movie where uh he's being asked about his medal and he goes yeah i got this medal for living for being the only one in my squad who lived all the other guys in my squad got medals for dying that's fucked up The book carries that theme through a little bit more, where it does talk about things like that, like how he totally abandoned his post to do something essentially suicidal. It happened to pay off. This is when he bombs the the Japanese squad with his backpack thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, he does kind of have a moment in the book where he's like, it's messed up that they're happy I did that. It was essentially dereliction of duty. Mm-hmm. but So it, that insight's kind of interesting. I, I think the juice that this movie has, potentially, even though the juice doesn't get squeezed, I think the juice it has is, I'm on a mission, my alleged ally is someone I might have to kill. Mm-hmm. And they don't know that. And the movie knows it's interesting, but it maybe doesn't realize it's the only interesting thing that distinguishes it from other movies. And it should be the thrust of the whole film, is this building, mounting tension. Now, not only do they not lean on it enough, I think every character arc in this movie is half-baked in some way. Why do we set up a romance with Francis O'Connor that doesn't really pay off Obviously, he dies in war, so it can't really. But even uh, from a character level, it's not like their correspondence pays off satisfactorily. Why do we set up that he's torn about whether to kill the Wind Talkers if he has to, and then just have him grenade one without much hesitation? I mean, mm-hmm. that basically nullified the movie for me. I, I thought, what are we doing here if we're spending an hour and a half going, will he kill a wind talker if, if he needs to? And then it occurs and he's like, uh, goodbye. What's, yes. What I, what's interesting to me about that point and that structure in the movie is he like, does it no qualms. Doesn't really seem very upset about it. Exactly. In the movie, he's much, he's more upset about it than I think he is in the book. Um, right. and then the rest of the movie is his code talker being like, that was fucked up and I don't appreciate it and I don't want to talk to you anymore. And he has to be like, oh no, wait, I've decided I like you. Let's be friends. And he has to like win yeah. back a friendship he never wanted to begin with. 
uh, which is just like bizarre. Absolutely a bizarre last half hour of a two hour movie. Yeah, because because then Yazi, he sees it happen. Uh, I guess in, in the movie, he sees it happen directly. And in the book, I think Joe Enders just says, I had to do this. These are my orders. Your friend is dead and it's my fault. And to see how, you know, because I think they they intend for this movie, they intend for this story, like I said, to be one where like the cultures are being exchanged, the 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 broad viewpoints about how to live, that's being exchanged. This person is a little bit more spiritual. This person has you know comes from a culture with uh, a healthy understanding of death and purpose and duty. This guy is the most tormented soldier of all time, who is also <laughs> suicidal, whose broken ear lets him hear the voices of his dead compadres and stuff like that. So, like, it is setting it up to, for there to be some sort of, 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 of exchange of ideas, of exchange of, like, you know, ways of being, ways of living. But once the truth comes out that Joe killed Charlie Whitehorse, the other code talker, then, like... It's Ben's turn to go full on suicidal Super Saiyan at that point. Like that's the exchange of beliefs that they go for. Is like, well, if you're sad, it just makes you a better fighter. It makes you a little bit crazier. It makes you a little bit more effective. And like, I think that war movies always have that inherent contradiction. You know, where uh, a character breaks and you feel bad for them on a human level, but in terms of you being a viewer, in, ter- in terms of me being a viewer who just wants to see cool action and cool bloodshed, like, it does unlock that for the movie at certain times, but I, I wish that this movie had any sense to to kind of pull back and, and really highlight that point that, like, man, uh, it sucks to break in this way. It's not just that it turns you into a super soldier, but, like, you know, it really fucks you up. Uh, and like, you know, there's the Sam Fuller war movie, the big red one, which is not especially good in my opinion, but it ends with Mark Hamill basically like shooting a dead body over and over and over and over and over again, because he is so fucked up and traumatized by what he's seen. And, you know, it's another movie that's kind of vignette You don't have much attachment to any of these characters and seeing someone actually end in that place where you're just like, oh, that dude is ruined by this experience is actually kind of interesting uh in in a very war is tragic kind of way um and so for this one to like not reckon with that at all like all it takes is for all it takes is for joe to basically apologize at the end and be like sorry i wish i didn't do that war is hard let me help you survive and then they're friends again all of a sudden it just like just happens so fast everything happens so fast without any actual attention to Uh, emotional detail I think yeah I totally agree and like the emotional aspect of that where like Ben goes on his suicide run and in the book particularly Enders watches him and is like oh shit that's what I've been doing that's really fucked up actually and I have to stop him but then they don't have an emotional beat of like you have to hold on to your tenderness you have to hold on to the love you feel for your family like I lost that stuff made my life valueless and I'm willing to give it up for you because I see what's you know whatever powerful about being a human being and that stuff's just not there. Like, you need some version of some emotional beat to, like, justify the end of the movie. 
Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, like they just don't. They just don't do it. It's like mm-hmm. so cursory. Mm-hmm. It really feels like whoever wrote the movie. Oh, I didn't do the thing where I said based on a script in the intro. A novelization <laughs> by Max Allen Collins based on a screenplay by written by John Rice and Joe Batier. Um, it really doesn't feel like Rice and Batier had any sort of resolution in mind. They were like, well, obviously we're writing a movie where he's going to die at the end. So let's just get to that. I mean, nothing pays off. I mean, what's the name of the the racist uh, chick, oh, chick guy? Chick. Chick uh, terrorizes uh, Yazzie for a lot of the movie, and he's super racist, and it really feels like it's going to boil over into, like, homicidal violence, and uh, it sure doesn't. What's frustrating in the book is that Chick is the only one of the other guys who lives. And you're like, I fucking hate that guy. And he didn't learn his lesson. Like, Charlie Whitehorse saves his (laughs) life, and he's like, huh, interesting. Mm -hmm. I guess he was a human being. (laughs) You're supposed to be like, well, I'm glad he gets to live for the rest of time. (laughs) That that is such a weird final moment between the two of them, where, like, I guess they've come together. But, again, zero specificity to that moment. And then we flash forward to a memorial ceremony decades later where Chick is You guys didn't him, keep in touch? Come he's on. He's giving him his medal finally <laughs> and being like, man, remember when we served together and it was all great? Not when I, like, abused the shit out of you and almost killed you because I'm that racist. And it was easy for me to say, you look a little bit Japanese- so I'm going to beat the shit out of you? It just It's so strange. I mean, his journey out of racism is one moment where he's like, do you think we'll ever be friends with the Japanese? Makes you think. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a very strange moment before the final <laughs> battle and everyone else dies. And they're like, wait, 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 do we need to have any conversations real quick? What do we need to talk about? That's right. Yeah. We need to make him a little less racist. Okay, you know. And the response to that is that, like, Joe Anders is like, I don't know, man, and they move on. Yeah. Hannah, that that moment feels like the moment in a period piece where somebody just says something that we know happens in the future. <laughs> like, it, yes. it's just, it's a couple steps shy of him being like, are they really our enemy? I could see someday there being a Disneyland in Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's very much like that. And, and This I guess book. With oh, the- go, Matt. With the Joe and Yazi stuff, because again, that is our central relationship, um, there, there is a little bit of interesting stuff with, with the Joe Enders character sort of realizing how much his cynicism is rubbing off on Yazi that I thought was like a little bit interesting, just for him to have that self-awareness and be like, oh man, maybe I am unhappy, maybe I am suicidal. Because I'm looking at it on this guy's face, and this mirror is not my favorite thing to be staring at right now. Like, Mm -hmm. he was not Mm -hmm. like this. He used to be bubbly. He spilled coffee on me earlier, and that was kind of cute. And now I feel bad. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, Adam Beach, very, very charming in this movie. So charming, deeply underutilized for a guy who is the lead character. Like, Nicolas Cage is the lead of the movie, but Ben Yazi is the le- he's the titular wind talker and he yeah. should be the perspective we follow for the movie. And unfortunately, I'm sure Hollywood was like, oh, I don't know, give me a white guy. But if you were with Ben the entire time, when 
Nicolas Cage kills his friend, it would be the craziest twist you'd ever seen in a movie. And suddenly yeah. you would get this information that would recontextualize the relationship and you'd be like, oh, that's why he's so off-putting and like distancing. He has to kill this guy and it's upsetting. Like, that could be really good. Mm-hmm. And Adam Beach could carry it. He's so talented and charismatic and great in this movie, but like just like deeply underused and underserved. That That's such a good point that... Uh... Yazi is the one who's really on a journey in the movie and by centering the white character it just becomes a movie that's like primarily moping and then a little bit of plot on the periphery whereas we could have a movie that is a plot movie about an interesting character and then one of the mysteries the many elements is why why is my bodyguard so mopey like he seems so haunted what's going on there oh it turns out he has a huge twist in his back pocket instead we're given the twist on page four uh just so you know by the way uh joe enders the there's a huge twist in the movie and you're it and then we just watch him sit around for the whole movie going oh the twist it's killing me it's killing me (laughs) Uh, I did read that Nicolas Cage learned to speak Navajo for this movie, and his excuse... That wasn't necessary. I mean, good for him. (laughs) Well, his excuse was, no, 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 it made me better because I got to understand some of the language stuff, and John Woo was like, you thought you were the code talker, didn't you? You thought you were the Navajo. And Nick Cage was like, no, 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 no. But that's John Woo's theory, is that he just misread the assignment and was like, I'm going to be the one speaking Navajo? This is awesome. I'm going to learn the whole language. This will be great. Wow. So. A character who speaks Japanese in the movie. Oh, yeah. Well, he wasted some time. I mean, God bless him. I hope that he's used it and enjoyed that knowledge and cultural growth. But like, wow. You know, I, I have a passage from the book I actually like, and I'm just going to read it. Okay. They're few and far between. Here yeah, we go, page 90. <laughs> it's one of the many action sequences. Mm-hmm. And then he saw Harrigan, that blonde-haired Florida beach boy with the Buck Rogers canister backpack that allowed him to throw flames and focused conflagration, step towards that same spider hole and shoot tongues of fire down into it, roasting the enemy alive. Yazi could see in the wide eyes of Harrigan, a basically gentle soul, that he was as consumed by the horror of what he was doing as the scorched, shrieking soldier was by flames. Pretty good description of action, and one of the rare moments in this book when Collins actually captures how horrifying yet exciting the action of the film is mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff in this book is Collins just being like the shots started coming from the west so they ran up the hill which had a structure on top of it that was to the east it's so technical and like it just feels like he's moving pieces around a board and then every once in a while he goes I can describe this in a very exciting cinematic way and it's mm-hmm. like well okay why aren't you mm-hmm. doing that for everything he also occasionally throws in what I would call verging on racist, like Native American stuff, where like his prose becomes like, ah, the blow of the trees reminded Yazi of like his native homeland and like shit that for me, I was like, <laughs> there has to be a way to say some of this stuff that isn't like, ah, the sp- tree spirits. Wow. And I'm like, dude, like there's no, I don't know about this. Mm-hmm. Every time mm-hmm. one of those popped up, I was like, ooh, bleh. especially because Ben Yazi is like a, a pretty 
Americanized Native American. Like, he's the modern guy. Almost as a point of pride. Right. He's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to be a professor. Even his homie Charlie Whitehorse is like, you're getting a little Americanized for, for what we're trying to do here, right? And yeah, that's not even, I don't know, handled with yeah. much interest, I don't think. I'm very interested in that. I would love a little bit more about like these two Native American guys who are like, well, we're different, actually. And mm-hmm. our life ideas are different. But here we are doing the same job. And we also care about each other. Like, mm-hmm. that's an interesting dichotomy of like, what, how do our varying philosophies apply to this job? And it's just not here. It's not here. And, and I was curious. So I did a previous episode, except it was not a novelization. It was a, a spinoff book. And so this uh, is... Wait, they, they, uh, hold up. Hold up. They're called tertiary tomes. <laughs> and just uh, let's get this on the record right now for anyone doubting me. Movie, primary text. Movie novelization, secondary text. Spin-off to movie novelization or sequel to movie novelization. Tertiary tome. It makes a lot of sense when you break it down. <laughs> Go uh, ahead. Andrew, it does. Allow me to correct myself. Thank you. Uh, I, I was on a previous episode where we discussed the tertiary tome jason's purse so this is my first encounter with a secondary text love it second is there an s word for book Mm. secondary slider no Mm -hmm. that's a hamburger Mm -hmm. (laughs) we'll work Uh, on that one we'll workshop cool is is this one is this one like indicative of how novelizations usually are because i was thinking about what the novelization adds and there are a few moments where it's like okay this is the bigger budget version of the scene you know it's raining in this scene in the book it's not raining in this scene and the rain is expensive i understand that and then there's a little bit of interiority but it's few and far between uh and so like how often do the novelizations really add stuff? Not that it has to go full, you know, E.T., if we want to talk about your guys' recent episode, but our, this is really just a beat-for-beat beat retelling, except, like, sometimes we spend five seconds more with the Japanese soldiers, sometimes we spend five seconds more with, like, the dust and the ash and the anticipation of battle, but for the most part, it's, like, the same thing. Yeah, I'm curious if that's common or not. Hannah, why don't you do a State of the Union? We're towards the end of season sure. three. Well, how does sure. this compare to like novelizations as we've experienced them as a podcast? Yeah, no, this one's weak as shit for sure. This is a, this is <laughs> the best movie novelizations are a lot of interiority, a lot of additional context. Just the author like taking the bones and spinning off and using their imagination in ways that like enrich the greater story. Um, and, and many of them are like that, even in minute ways. Like sometimes you'll get something that feels kind of cursory, but like, boy, they're really diving into this one character in a way that the movie doesn't have time for. And that's cool and interesting. This is like nothing. This is pure bones. And then there's like a couple changes where like clearly the scenes changed structure when they were filming and Mark Ruffalo doesn't die. The biggest change that mm-hmm. shocked me. <laughs> I think that there's other merits to novelizations aside from the embellishments and the, and the liberties the writer takes i think there's something to be said i'm trying to think of what's the perfect example for this maybe hmm say what you're trying to say and i'll try and figure it out i w- there are novelizations where they they tightly embrace the plot structure of the movie but the way that they describe the action 
is itself a flavor that you don't necessarily get from the movie, or it represents it so well that you're like, oh, this is like cinematic language, even though they're not taking a huge swing. I kind of feel like Face Off is like that. There's not a ton of added like chapters in Face Off, but the way that it's described is like very kinetic and and you get a different kind of rush than you do get watching the action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like some authors essentially get to see the movie or versions of the movie and are really translating screen to page. And authors who have less to work with are forced into like these creative avenues that create like interesting opportunities to be like, okay, well, it says they're in a house, so let's fill in the house um, in ways that can be really exciting and interesting. Because I, I do get the sense that the novelization probably came from the the like initial more director's cut version of this script that is less about the rah rah gun battles and the squibs and the bloodshed and a little bit more about the like exchange of cultures exchange of ideals and stuff um and i think that the book does have a few moments that that felt good in terms of like emotional closure like for for the book to have that moment where ben is like look in my culture, it's important to speak of the dead. You should mention their names. Tell me about them. Let's sort of preserve their life through stories. And I did like that scene at the end of the book where, you know, when when Nick Cage is giving his dying breath, he's actually able to to refer to the picture of his fallen former soldier buddies that he feels responsible for. And you get a sense of that closure. You get a sense of that, like, exchange of ideals. And like, oh, that did feel good. I'm okay mm-hmm. dying now a little bit. Um, They've helped each other grow right. to healthier emotional places. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I guess my point of view was like, okay, I could see how this makes a little bit more room for emotion. You don't need an actor to sell it. You can just read it and bring your own sort of emotional perspective to it. But um, yeah, beat for beat, and even in terms of like, here come the soldiers, here comes the gunfire, here come the dead bodies, uh, it's, it's, it's very just ripping. In, in a way that I was like, oh, it's kind of the same thing again. Interesting. The first 25 minutes of movie are like literally scene for scene, word for word, identical to the novelization. Mm-hmm. Um, Truly, why was the book commissioned is what I was yeah, thinking. It's, it's really, I, I mean, I was texting Andrew while I was watching it. And I was like, it's almost like, what's the point? Because it's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Then there start to be minor divergences, um, but not like, as we were saying, not for the better, like they don't, the book is not helping explain what's happening or to whom or why. Mm-hmm. I had a better point about that. The biggest divergence I think is really a poor choice, which is in the book, Ben Yazi sees Ender's grenade, Charlie Whitehorse. And mm-hmm. as opposed to learning that Charlie's dead, then hearing that Enders did it and being like, is that true? How could you? But in the book, it's like he sees the grenade thing happen. He sees his bodyguard murder his friend and he goes into a rage, understandably. Mm -hmm. But it really feels like if he sees it, we're not coming back from this. There's Mm -hmm. no way to repair this friendship. I mean, it even feels difficult to repair it if he doesn't see it. In the movie, it benefits from, like, Nick Cage does it, and is kind of, like, laughing. Like, he's had a break about it, and he's kind of laughing about it because it's so fucked oh, yeah. up. And Yahtzee approaches him and is like, what the fuck happened to my friend? And Nick Cage is like, I killed him. I killed him. 
I did that in a way that is so callous and off-putting that you're like, oh God, yeah, have a fight. And then later when Ben realizes like, oh, you had an emotional break over doing that. Maybe I can forgive you. You are genuinely sorry. Not his first, by the way. There are many other moments (laughs) in the movie where he goes full like Joker, laughing, (laughs) crying, firing off ammunition and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, And I do think in the movie- Not the guy to do that. uh Uh-huh. In the movie in that scene, I think- the only other thing we get is a little bit more of like uh, an exchange, a look between Charlie and Joe Enders, where Charlie's almost like, do it, throw the grenade, yes. I'll catch it, and then blow up. Like, it, there, there's like a little bit more of them communicating. I love to other. die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, the book has Enders being like, I think he gave me the okay. And you're right, Matt, but the movie is like, they really go back and forth, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you have to. It, you know, it's like the it's like uh, one of those improv games where you throw the ball to the person you make meaningful eye contact with, <laughs> except the ball is homicide. Um, okay, since we're talking about this part, I'm going to read the part where, in the book where he kills Charlie Whitehorse, which I think is a pretty good part. There's so much I don't like about the book. Listener, you know I'll just absolutely massacre a book if I don't like it. I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like reading 20 passages where I'm like, this is bad, this is bad. So let's talk about the good stuff. All right. Enders, his ears ringing, alone, unarmed, looked around in panic. All these dead Marines, flung as carelessly as if discarded. Had they fought to their last round of ammo? Certainly some weapon had to remain, had to be within his reach. Then he saw it, half buried by rubble, clutched in the hand of a Marine who had never got to use it. A grenade. Enders scrambled to the body, plucked the grenade from limp fingers. This was good, but a gun would be better. He could save Whitehorse then. Only, when he looked up, Enders knew it was too late. They were dragging Whitehorse away, two soldiers being led by a self-satisfied intelligence officer who knew he had held within the mind of one wounded prisoner the information that could turn the tide of this war. Though no shells were dropping, Enders heard a pounding in his left ear, an ominous bass drum that seemed to underscore his lack of options. He fumbled with the pin, pulled it loose, and followed his orders, orders that Pete Anderson had not been able to obey. Enders hurled the grenade. He did not see, emerging from the smoke and drifting dust, another Navajo face, as Ben Yazi, already struggling to focus in the haze, climbed to the hilltop only to see something he could not comprehend, Joe Enders throwing a grenade at Charlie Whitehorse. And when the grenade bounced at his feet, Whitehorse, in the midst of his Japanese chaperones, looked down at the USMC issue ordinance, forcing his numbered gaze to focus, his numbed gaze to focus, then glanced back in one long, last final moment at Joe Enders. Their eyes met, locked. Was it Ender's imagination, or maybe wishful thinking, that he saw understanding and acceptance in the unblinking eyes in that solemn moon face? The uh, solemn moon face feels a little dicey, but um, the, <laughs> the yeah, even if he gets agreement from Whitehorse in those final moments, in the book, he's saying it's after he threw the grenade. <laughs> it's like... You know, I don't think I don't think you get you can get consent for homicide after you homicided. It does it doesn't square for me. But I don't know. Collins infuriates me, uh, Max Allen Collins, because this passage is fine. It's good. It works. It's got like a 
uh, it's got a conflict to it. There's, there, it's dynamic. He, he's trying to kill this guy. There's stakes to that because it could turn the tide of the war if they get the 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 code talker. But then also he decides to put uh, Yazi in the scene, which is a decision I don't agree with, but it's interesting. Mm-hmm. He's got multiple levels of conflict going on, which is something the movie in general seems very unconcerned with is paying off you know mounting tension uh the fact that collins every once in a while decides that he wants to ramp up things like this pisses me off because most of the book is just this muck that's completely directionless uh and the fact that i know he can do it now makes me dislike the rest even more there's a a line in chapter eight that i highlighted because it made me laugh and it's knocking over Japanese like living bowling pins that I have that too yeah (laughs) (laughs) living bowling pins that were soon dying I'm just like okay okay that's one way to uh and again we're talking about repetition here he's got to find a lot of different ways to describe human bodies being destroyed by uh U.S. marine ordinances of various shapes and sizes but um not all great unfortunately there's so many more weapons that these guys have than I knew soldiers carried. Like, each of, <laughs> each of the guys, each of the five whatever dudes on their squad has a different type of crazy-ass gun, um, which didn't feel right to me, but I don't know enough about it to contest it. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, th- there is one difference between the movie and the book that I thought was interesting. Uh, in the movie, ammunition, not at all relevant. You don't run out... You can fire for days, and in the climax of the book, it is all about ammunition and the fact that Joe Enders is slowly running low on stuff and, you know, has to eventually use a machete, essentially, to, to do his to do his deeds. I mean, the compelling moment in the book where he's down to one bullet and Ben is like, well, we all know what that's for, huh, mm-hmm. douche? Mm-hmm. You gonna use it or not? Um, the moment doesn't play the same in the movie where he's just like, yeah, well, I still have a gun. <laughs> you I got endless that, guns. Yeah, yeah, so many guns. There's guns everywhere. There's dead dudes holding guns left, right, and center. Uh-huh. Like, that that little conflict was like, oh, I didn't know I cared about this. And suddenly I was like, oh, no. Hannah, it reminds me of, uh, I forget if it's John Wick 2 or 3, but there's that John Wick movie. Oh, Hannah hasn't seen any of them. Wow. Um, there's a John Wick me. movie where... They, it's not the first one. That's important because, like, you already know the character. There's a, a movie where they're like, okay, here's the thing, John. You can go in there, and there's a bunch of guys that want to kill you, but you only have one bullet in this gun. And it's really, they put a lot of emphasis on it as if to be like, this is the stakes of the scene. But you've already seen John Wick 1, and you're just thinking, he's going to grab some other dude's gun in one (laughs) second. And then he does. And it's like, why did we milk that for tension? (laughs) If I were to say that there is a passage in this book that is the grossest, would you know what I was talking about? I don't know. Give us a read, Andrew. Here we go. Because I can remember what I thought was the grossest part of the movie, which is not in the book. Wait, what's the grossest part of the movie? Oh, what? pretty early on, a guy gets caught in a wall of uh, razor Barbed wire. wire. Yeah. And then some guys try to help him and they get stuck. And then they all get shot to shreds. 
But it's like the gnarliest shit I've ever seen. I think also in the movie you see someone you see someone purposefully lay on the barbed wire so that his friends can use him as a bridge over it. Was that on purpose? I thought it was on purpose, but that was me. I thought he died going over it, and then they were all like, uh, that's a step I can use. Gnarly shit in there. Either way, hardcore. Hardcore (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Uh, Harrigan, in the meantime, was running toward another closer to the pillbox crater. The pillbox thing. Remember that? Mm-hmm. There's like something shooting at them. It's like the mm-hmm. shape of a pillbox. Into which he and his clumsy flamethrowing gear dove. Enders, seeing this, sought a new position in the trenches, Yazi at his heels. The Indian almost got clobbered when Enders reared back and hurled a grenade. The grenade landed and exploded into the expected fragments just in front of the bunker, raising a small dust cloud and no doubt stunning the gunners within. Bet that got their attention, Enders said. If it hadn't, what Harrigan did surely would. The battlefront beach boy stood in his crater and unleashed a stream of fire, a terrible orange tongue that licked the metal pillbox, sought the slit, slithered inside. Pretty gross. Sought the slit. I'm not, I don't like reading it. All the flamethrower stuff is pretty nasty uh, also. Yeah, when when he dies, the idea of, of him... His tank exploding. And this is bad in the movie and the book. Oh, yeah. It's just, it's rough stuff, man, for for you to be uh, burned alive because of your backpack. Not yeah. ideal. I mean, in the movie, too, Enders shoots him to put him out of his misery, which is, uh, in the in the book, he just, like, dies quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think it makes a point to be like, he died quick, though. Don't worry. It, yeah, don't if, worry about if, it. If anything good happened, it was that it was a quick end, thankfully. Yeah, I mean, most uh, of these guys have pretty quick deaths. Like, Nels gets blown up by a grenade. He dies mm-hmm. pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Harrigan burns to death pretty quick, we're told. And then, like, the Hellstrom, I mean, he does not die very quickly, but he's hyped up on morphine, so he probably doesn't doesn't bother him. Papas dies as a hero with a smile on yeah. his face. He's pretty stoked. <laughs> Joe dies with a smile on his face. He's pretty stoked. Nobody gets Goldberged. In this no, one. No. Well, Christian Slater. A little bit. A, a little, little bit. bit. Yeah. A little, a little bit. bit. He's I mean the the book makes it very clear that he does not see incoming and does not know what happens. His head gets cut off. Um, yeah. but then I have to, I had to spend way too much time with the concept of Christian Slater's head being off, which I did not like <laughs> at all. Um, and in the movie, he gets, like, bayoneted in the gut, and I was like, oh thank God, they aren't doing the head thing. And then they did. <laughs> And it hurt my feelings. Uh, at the end of the book as well, it, it's funny to see the book, which I think overall is a little bit more grounded. John Woo, you know, is a maximalist filmmaker after all. But at the end of the book, we have, you know, the final few enemy guns. We're running out of ammunition. We're calling in the plane attack. It works. And the last bomb that is dropped goes into the cannon of the enemy's gun, basically. Like sought it, the slit. It's it's it <laughs> sought the slit, man. It's it's Ew. the gun. It's the bullet coming out and the bomb going in and the big explosion. And uh, that would never happen in real life. I will say that. I don't know if that's true, but it feels true. And so in the book, for them to be like, look at this crazy movie. John Woo moment 
I just thought it was kind of cute. <laughs> There's also a part in the book where Nicolas Cage's character uh, lifts a tank, which does not make it into the movie, which is oh, another yeah. element of like, oh, we're doing when, this when he, now. Well, he does it. He's like, enough men died. And then he just <laughs> it's really cool. He goes full Hulk mode. Yeah, it's I do impressive. miss that Yazi is under a tank for like the last sequence and they're like you gotta get out from under that tank man dude and he spends um, the whole time digging is... without making any progress at all at oh, all yeah. nothing all that you stuff did. about the knife too which feels like a metaphor um doesn't make it into the movie and the movie's weaker for it mm-hmm. not that the book is terribly strong but that's some okay stuff other differences there's a scene in the book where one of the commanding officers is coming to give Nicolas Cage one of his medals while obviously ignoring all the hard work that our Navajo soldier buddy Ben Yazi put in. Uh, and in, in the movie, it's very quick. He shows up. He's racist. The scene is done. And in the book, there's all this fun business with Nicolas Cage or with Joe Ender's like, his shoe is off and he has to go over there only with one with one shoe on and the reason i thought it was cute is i was like you know i bet nick cage just didn't want to do that if that was in the <laughs> script i'm sure he was like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hobble over there with one shoe on i'm nicholas cage i'm gonna have my shoes <laughs> that's my take on it i mean this I, guy's comfortable that's my interpretation yeah. of him I have to assume that, like, the, so the last scene in the book is this memorial scene 30 years later or whatever that features, like, Yazzie looks out into the crowd and sees the ghost of Joe Henders saluting him. And you have to believe that Nicolas Cage said, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. I, I mean, it would be the, it's so cheesy in the book and it would just be a nail in a coffin in the movie. Unacceptable. Weirdly uh, similar to Cowboys and Aliens, which is like a perfect book up until the last moment. And then they're just like, the ghost of the alien lady watched him eat dinner. And you're like, Good. <laughs> thank fucking God. This isn't in the movie. Uh, I will say that final moment in the book worked pretty well for me. I was like, oh, Joe, Joe, I miss you. I'm glad you guys have this moment. I like the final moment in the movie better, where Ben goes back to his family and is like, let me tell you about the man who saved my life. That feels more like the appropriate ending to their story together is like, I'm going to carry your memory forward and all your deeds and whatever. That's so true. It's it's, it's the same thing. It's it's, it's him practicing what he preached. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you about the guy. That guy. I'm coming for my boy, John. Woo. (laughs) I don't think that the the movie looks that good. Uh, It doesn't. His action in Face Off is incredible, and his sense of place in Face Off is incredible. Every time we go to a location in Face Off, it's a well-defined location. So, like, when Nicolas Cage starts running around in the magnet prison, it's like, I've seen these rooms, I know these rooms. When there's the whole shootout at the fucking Gangster's Palace slash art museum... It's like, okay, well, these are, like, spaces that, like, I'm, like, seeing the layout of them. I'm understanding where characters are running. When you take John Woo into exteriors, apparently, based on this movie, all the action's crazy, it looks it looks wild, but it just feels like they're standing on a soundstage, 
and mm-hmm. nothing feels like the actual outdoors. It's just this weird mash of like gray colors and like so it, it looks like like man-made hills. I think I thought it looked terrible. I agree that I think it looks stagey at least. Um, there's a lot of like intricately choreographed fight scenes where like no, really long takes great. moving through incredible action. Um, but it is very, it's way overlit in a sort of way. It looks really yeah. like soundstage, like you say. Yeah. And also, it's a bunch of guys in identical uniforms, all <laughs> wearing their helmets all the time, which is great. Good for them. You cannot right. tell anybody apart. <laughs> like, I, I know I've been harping on this a little bit, but like, I really thought I just missed when Mark Ruffalo died. Because I had like just seen some other guy get killed in the exact I mean that's uniforms for you, but it was really hard to keep track of who's who and who's where. And then when they're like, Oh, Mark's still here, I was like, Oh, what? <laughs> Truly couldn't tell who was who or what was happening. Which hurts the action because you can't follow our heroes. Right. At any point. Like I just these are not unique enough looking dudes and they aren't highlighted by the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It's tough. And then it gets boring because you're like, who are these people? I don't care. <laughs> you know, our 500 on-screen deaths is a stinking lot. I felt like the book, the book could have been called Who Are These People? I Don't Care. Because <laughs> it, 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 Collins, as we've said, he just squanders the opportunity of writing a novelization in this case. And I look forward to reading some other Max Allen Collins and being like, he's a genius. We started with one of his lesser works or whatever. But one of the things you get to do as a novelizationist is say, get to know these characters. Hey, the movie got cut down to shit. It got edited in a way we didn't like. Here's a bunch more about these characters. You know, they're these like little time capsules. It's one of the great things about novelizations is that the intention of the writer is often crystallized in the book and delivered to the devout fans. Uh, and it sort of gets past the studio in a way and max allen collins has no interest in doing that and as i said in the intro he just uh reports the movie as it is and in the movie these characters just sort of emerge you're, they're just there and you're like okay very quickly i guess this is the racist one i guess this guy has this character trait blah 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 the book does the same thing but since it's a book since i don't have the performances i'm just going who are all these people? <laughs> you know, there's eight of them introduced in 30 seconds, mm-hmm. and none of them are given a, a moment to really, aside from our main, our main, main characters of, of Cage and Ben Yazi and Charlie Whitehorse and, and a little bit Christian Slater, although as Hannah not says- Not enough. Not enough. <laughs> and, and, I mean, he gets the and. It's and Christian Slater. Ah, uh, he deserves a lot more, because that character uh, interests me, actually. <laughs> Yeah, Much more it, than Joe Anders interests me. I think that this book, it, it's like, it, it just having read this first. Did you guys read this first? I, I watched did. the movie first, actually. You watched the movie first. Okay. Mm-hmm. Reading this first, I really didn't have a read on many of the characters' traits, aside from that chick was racist. There were just too many characters introduced in too short an amount of time. Um, yeah. I think I think it's it, it kind of fails as a novelization because this sounds like a closing thought, but I just I, I, it's just such a damning thought. I just yeah. think he didn't do anything with with the opportunity, and it it, it reads very strangely. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also like we're introduced to Charlie and Ben at the same time; they meet their bodyguards at the same time. Then we lose Charlie and 
Christian Slater for like 45 pages at least. And then yeah. they'll pop back in yeah. for a second and be like, how's it going? Great. Good. Okay. See you in another 45 pages. Oh, when no. Now we're all you. getting slaughtered. Mm. Yeah. I Characters who come and go. I mean, even the guys in their squad sort of wander in and out of the story in a way that like, is this an ensemble picture? Is it not at all? Like, how much should I even invest in learning these guys' names? Because I clearly didn't really. I mean, Christian Slater comes bounding into the movie as like a chipper guy who's like, I would love to do something nice with my life. And you're like, ah, cool. And then he goes away. And I really missed him. I missed that like offset of the misery of like Nicolas Cage's performance. Yeah, he and Nick Cage are fun together too. I think they have a good, they have a good rapport. It's fun to see Christian Slater as like the goofball and Nick Cage as like the most tormented man. And uh, (laughs) they don't spend that much time together. So... Mm-mm. I mean, nobody, the only guy who gets to know Christian Slater is Charlie Whitehorse, and they both die at the exact same time. So you never <laughs> have a moment where one of them is like, oh no, this guy who I was friends with, we really mm-hmm. made something together. Um, that the music thing that like comes through the book and is in one scene of the movie where they're like, you know, we made beautiful music together. It's very romantic. <laughs> we finally found a place where we understand each other and we're creating something wonderful and then they like 10 pages later both get fucking slaughtered i was impressed by that reading the book uh for the for the listener there's a part in the movie and the book uh or a running a running plot where the two characters are trying to play music together and one's on the harmonica and then the other one has uh what was he playing it's like a flute the flute navajo, of some sort the navajo flute and there's a lot of of writing in the book about they tried to play together, but the harmonica and the and the Navajo flute didn't really, you know, they didn't really gel, and and they were kind of at, at war with each other, and and then finally they have some breakthrough, and it goes, you know, the one soared over the other, and then it would dip down and let the other one have its moment, and it was incredible, and it was teamwork, and and all the themes of my book came together is is one of the things Max Allen's Collins says. Yeah, there's um, like a cool story happening in the background of the actual book about these other two guys who develop something really powerful together. But the thing that I, I was impressed with is that in the movie, it actually sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it does. I, I, th- I thought to myself, this is going to really fall on its face if they can't make it work in the movie. <laughs> like, anyone can write, like, and then the song was great. <laughs> but it's pretty great. How are you feeling, guys? Yeah, the, the only other things that were making me laugh yeah there's um the the way this movie was marketed made me laugh a lot i watched the movie trailer for it and the movie trailer is insane like it it it's mostly just the action it's literally using pirates of the caribbean soundtrack basically like i don't know if it's the exact score but watch that trailer and tell me that that is not the pirates of the caribbean soundtrack uh and just like the the taglines for it were hysterical to me where it's like this summer america has the last word because <laughs> it's about <code laughs> and it's just wow. like okay there you go it's a uh, tagline written by someone who only saw the title oh absolutely although the tagline for the book is also pretty silly on the back where it says, speak a language all their own <laughs> all their own it is one of repression mm-hmm. and uh abuse and i don't know super <laughs> heroism just yeah very strange stuff yeah 
I mean, okay, so this movie came out in 2002. This book comes out October 2001, when, like, America fervor is at its tragic peak. Right. There has to be some, like, when they were like, okay, it's time to put a trailer out in November 2001. I guess it has to be about how great America is and how we always stand up and fix things. Wow. Yeah. It would have would have been amazing if they did the opposite. If in November 2001, they were like, you know, this summer, America, we've made some mistakes. Here's a story about how going into other countries will ruin human lives. <laughs> Don't make the same mistakes again. Matt Dartnell. Yeah. You are a guy with a flamethrower in World War II. That's there is well first of all you're 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 uh, you're an avid reader and this whole world war ii thing has really taken you away from one of your favorite hobbies you see in a pillbox shaped device that is attacking you a copy of wind talkers by max allen collins you think that if you can kill the people trying to kill you you can maybe sit down and read that book. <laughs> Knowing what you know now, would you let the fiery tongue come out and seek the slit? Yes! Getting the thumbs down, <laughs> double thumbs down from Hannah. Because uh, I never want to hear that phrase ever again. I think you might hear that <laughs> phrase again, Hannah. I don't want to, I'm sorry to break it to you. Uh, I hate it. I don't I, want that to be like a catchphrase that we have to put on t-shirts someday. I'd rather it's die. This season's, it's this season's uh, retrieving magnet. <laughs> I, uh, I, I know for a fact I would be a bad soldier. I hope that I would still be able to like do my job and save my homies. Would I do it for the Max Allen Collins novelization of Wind Talkers? No, I would probably lick that as well with my flamethrower tongue but <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe I would survive at least 15 minutes longer maybe it is a bad plan to try to flamethrower someone to get the book they're holding it's probably <laughs> not gonna work out for you <laughs> Matt oh. why don't you do one Matt okay <laughs> If you want to I said think it about so aggressively. it, I have one ready. <laughs> okay, to go. go. Okay, Andrew Overby. Hi. You are a woman nurse. Love that for me. You've been stationed on Hawaii, which is great. Actually, you're having a good time. It's beautiful now that the bombings have stopped. Pretty, pretty. Yeah, I'm dope. glad for it. Yeah, me too. Um, you've met a tortured soldier who's not super communicative, but you know that you share something special and you do it in a car one time and you're like, that's my guy. When it's a car, you know it's real. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, You make a wish on a star that he'll survive and he doesn't. Anyway, so he goes back off to the front lines and you're writing him letters, trying desperately to pull something out of him, right? And one day you send him... As a recommendation of something that might evoke an emotional response from him, Wind Talkers by Max Allen Collins. I've overworked this a little bit, but that's fine. I, is, uh, will he, he come home to me? Is that the question? Yeah. Do you think this book <laughs> would bring him back? Uh, I think that this guy, if he were to pick up a copy of 
Wind Talkers by Max Allen Collins. Given its content and given his trauma, I think he would just like walk into an enemy camp <laughs> unarmed and be and be riddled with bullets. Um, if he were a, a not traumatized individual who could maybe handle this subject matter, I think he would severely question my taste. And e- even if he came home to me, I think there'd be like a little, it, it would turn into one of those relationships where I give him book recommendations and he's like, yeah, that sounds great. Like, I'll totally read that. And then it just never comes up again. <laughs> just no follow through, but also really trying to avoid an argument in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a meritless book. It's got moments, but like when you're writing a 260 page novelization, you're going to have moments by accident. I mean, <laughs> if you're any sort of capable writer, it's like a clock being right twice a day thing. I mean, Max Allen Collins, obviously a guy with talent. He wrote like 20 of these. People do. There are reviews of other novelizations of his that are like, this was great. Added so much. He's obviously, he's got writerly abilities. He wrote Road to Perdition, a great movie by a director who I can't seem to ever enjoy anymore. Anyway, that's a totally different discussion. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, he just he either decided not to bring it here or he tried to bring it and he wasn't inspired by the material at all. But mm-hmm. I think this is an abject failure as a novelization. Do not recommend. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, okay. <laughs> if the pressure's too much, Matt, I get it. I didn't prep you at all. <laughs> Hannah Blackman. That's me. You survived the Pacific campaign of World War II. Congratulations. <laughs> A miracle. Thank you. No Thank you. no swamp foot, no Whew. bullet holes, Whew. just a little bit of a limp because you were at one point crushed by a tank. Your family. George Washington Blackman, your adorable <laughs> little child, yes, really cute. wants to hear about your escapades <laughs> and the man who you say you owe your life to, Joe Enders. Would the novelization of Wind Talkers written by Max Allen Collins, uh, would it be a good piece of personal history to hand little George Washington Blackman to convey the horrors and joy of the island of Saipan. I mean, no, right? But I think if I was handing this to my like 10-year-old son and I would be like, "Listen, this is heavy, but we're not it's not so heavy because it is such a cursory beat by beat sort of book." It might be a good introduction to my experiences overseas for that specific circumstance. Anybody else in the world, though, no. I, I think I could tell a better version of this story with my words than what Max Allen Collins did, and it would be shorter. Like, if there's any version of this worth experiencing, it's the movie, because, like, that squib work is exquisite. Like, you gotta see those dang squibs. Like, the movie uses squibs, like, Max Allen Collins uses the phrase red mist all over the <laughs> place. His <laughs> number one Savage descriptor. takedown. Just perfect. <laughs> he uses it too much. Be more creative, Max. <laughs> Thank you. I've been sitting on that. Gonna one the use whole that episode. in real life, uh, just like, just like. Uh, Talk about red babe, mist. You gotta let up. You're using, it, 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 babe. You gotta let up. You're using mayonnaise like Max Allen Collins uses the <laughs> frayed red mist. 
Uh, it's, I don't know. I, I did not enjoy reading this. I found it pretty boring. <laughs> I would not recommend it to pretty much anybody. And that's how I feel about Wind Talkers. I mean, I'm war things. I'm, I'm in a, it came at me. I probably was never going to like this story, which is like a weird glorification of the absolute disgusting horrors of war. There's no version of that that I was going to be like, I loved this. You know, I'm in a, not in the place for that. And it's not cool enough or fun enough to like overcome that. So no, no, pass. Matt Dartnell, you're on Letterboxd. And what's going on there? Mm, well, uh, in conjunction with watching Wind Talkers, I watched a, a number of John Ford, John Wayne military movies. And, uh, it's a real John week. Nice. Uh, truly. Oh, yeah. And it's always fun to to read a book like Wind Talkers, where they keep referencing this was a real John Wayne military move, considering <laughs> John Wayne did not serve in World War II, and John Ford did, and gave him so much shit about that fact. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, just got off of a fun kick of uh, other war movies that I watched over the 4th of July holiday break. And uh, it was an interesting headspace to be in, thinking about this country, thinking about service to this country, dying for this country, and uh, whether or not I would be excited to do that right now. The answer is no. I would not either. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I've been watching a lot of MASH, as everyone knows, because I won't shut up about it. Uh, another thing that I'm like, would I even want to do this? Like, would I even want to go overseas to help save lives? Because I get what cost? What point is there to do that for your fucked up country. Very true. I just think whenever I think about getting drafted or whatever, I, I think, you know, would the U.S. economy be able to survive me not selling software anymore? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think it might collapse. To our fans, our listeners, you know what? You don't even have to like us. If you listened, this is to you. To our, our, our listeners, both fanatical and dispassionate. Thank you for tuning in for another week of Authorized. Uh, please do rate our podcast. Please review it. Uh, the reviews, they mean a lot when we get them. Makes me feel good. Please uh, subscribe. Please tell your friends. Uh, coming up next week, we have, of course, Greece. Sort of a, a famously strange and uh, liberty-taking novelization. So that should be a good time. And then the week after that, U.S. Marshals with our good old friend, Max Allen Collins. Max, prove me wrong, buddy. Yeah, well, now I'm on edge, so he has a lot of work to do. Hopefully it's the reverse Alan Dean Foster, right? Like, we did Aliens, and it was like, cool, cool book. And we did Star Trek. It was like, bad. Don't. Don't write, don't write these. <laughs> yeah, another guy who makes me nervous when I see his name on a novelization. So yeah, do all that stuff. I guess keep tuning in. Uh, we appreciate you. And as always, I'm going to close the episode by reading an excerpt from a classic bit of literature, a touchstone that has sort of formed our culture. And do tweet at me if you can recognize what it's from. Here we go. The grenade landed and exploded into the expected fragments just in front of the bunker raising a small dust cloud and, no doubt, stunning the gunners within. Bet that got their attention, Enders said. If it hadn't, what Harrigan did surely would. The battlefront beach boy stood in his crater and unleashed a stream of fire, a terrible orange tongue that licked the metal pillbox, sought the slit, slithered inside. So let me know if you uh, recognize what seminal piece of writing that's from. 
and uh, have a wonderful night. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs>